This is Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we talked a little bit about George Floyd and what's going on down in the States. And you might remember me mentioning very briefly and passing critical theory. You still might not be very familiar with, okay, uh, what what is critical theory? I understand even people who are not familiar with critical theory, you understand immediately that you've actually encountered it. If you hear words like, you know, social justice, white privilege, and so on and so forth. So I've been really wanting to talk about critical theory more in detail, and I've been following Neil Shenvey's work uh, for the last little while. So today, all the way from Durham, North Carolina, uh, we have on the line Dr. Neil Shenvey. Dr. Shenvey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so as we get started, for those of us who may not be very familiar with who you are, would you tell us who is Neil Shenvey? Who is Neil Shenvey? Well, I'm a Christian. That's the most important thing, I guess. Uh, Mm. But I grew up in Delaware, wonderful parents, great family life, but I was not raised in a Christian home. And I was, when I went to college in New Jersey, I was kind of spiritual but not religious. I met my future wife there. We moved out to California for graduate school, and that's where I became a Christian, Mm. just through knowing her and through knowing um, getting involved in a a Bible study out there. And so it's a long story, but basically God showed me that I needed forgiveness and that if Jesus is the one who's offering me that, then who am I to say no? So we got PhDs, my wife and I. We got married. We got PhDs. And we moved out to Yale, where she got an MD as well, and I did a postdoc at Yale. I have my PhDs in theoretical chemistry. Moved down to Durham about 10 years ago, where I did a postdoc at Duke, and then quit my job to homeschool our four kids. That's what I'm currently mm-hmm. doing. That's my background. Yeah, so I noticed the first thing that really grabbed my my eye when I went to your website is your tagline is Christian apologetics from a homeschooling theoretical chemist. So then I went went to take a look at your list of publications, and man, I, I was having a hard time just pronouncing some of the words here. Uh, you've got lots of different things. For example, transition state barriers in multidimensional Marcus theory. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so all this to say, listeners, the person that we have here is a highly educated man who knows what he's talking about. So I hope our conversation here today will help you. So let's get into a little bit more about critical theory. One of the questions that I first had was, what got you into critical theory in the first place? It, it seems like a bit of a jump, if you will, from theoretical chemistry to critical theory. So obviously something really grabs your attention there. So how did you get into that field in the first place? Yeah, good question. So I am overeducated in theoretical chemistry, but my training is definitely not in the humanities or in critical theory, which is sort of sociology, maybe philosophy a little bit. And to be honest, I was not concerned at all about those areas. I became a Christian in Berkeley, and I'd often be asked about science and religion, so I got into apologetics. 
and explaining to people why Christianity was rational, what evidence we have that Jesus was who he claimed to be, things like that. Very typical standard apologetics. I was not a culture warrior. I was pretty apolitical. So this was off of my radar completely. But then a few years ago, maybe five years ago, I began noticing this strange shift among evangelicals who seemed to be embracing social justice language and concerns. And I assumed that was fine. I assumed they meant that they wanted to apply biblical principles to our laws, which is obviously a very good thing. Mm-hmm. But then these same people began drifting theologically. And I, people that I knew personally, public figures, I couldn't figure out why. And then providentially, I became friends with a guy named Dr. Pat Sawyer, who has a PhD in cultural studies. And his dissertation was written at the interface, well, it had to do with critical theory. He was explaining his research to me, and I said, this sounds a lot like these cultural trends that I'm noticing, even among evangelicals. And he actually said, no, that's not possible, because I'm doing work that in order to reach my secular colleagues with the gospel, there's no way that a conservative evangelical would embrace these ideas. They're clearly unbiblical. So we kind of dialogue back and forth, and we've come to now collaborate quite a bit because we do see these ideas influencing the evangelical church. And I can give you many examples of that that are quite obvious and kind of alarming. Mm-hmm. I'll just give you one. Uh, last year, uh, a Christian professor who's written for Christianity Today had a series that she wrote for Lent entitled Christ Our Black Mother. And she said that she wanted to do an intersectional exploration that examines both God's blackness and femaleness on the cross. Mm. And that's a pretty alarming language. And if you read the series, it's also equally alarming. And that's just one of many people that we saw who started Orthodox, who started evangelical, but then would just really veer into this dangerous theological territory. I really resonate with that because I teach an online course called the Thinking Series Online Course uh, that's accredited through a local Bible school in British Columbia. And I get different students come through and I grade their papers and things like that. And every now and then I come across students who have a very different kind of language that they use, that the outlook on Christianity is very different from my own. And often I notice that they have this critical theory kind of a mentality behind what they're writing. And so they start questioning sort of the maleness of God, if you will, like because God is portrayed as a father figure in the Bible or, you know, Jesus refers to him as father, you know, and so then they go on a bit of a rant sometimes about, you know, this is the product of this patriarchal society and we need to overthrow that and those kinds of things. So I really resonate with what you're saying there. Why do you think so many evangelical Christians, because I do see a lot of them these days, maybe I'm just noticing them more, but why do you think that so many evangelical Christians find critical theory attractive? What do you think is going on there? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Christians don't always realize that there is a worldview behind these ideas or the language they use. They think they understand what it means. The words like oppression are biblical. I mean, the Bible talks about how Jesus himself was oppressed and afflicted. They hear words like justice, compassion, 
And they assume that these words have traditional meanings, but actually a lot of those words have been explicitly redefined within this context. Hmm. So maybe it would help to go back and say, well, what what are we talking about? What is critical theory? Where does it come from? And what are its basic views that we're seeing inside? Would that help? Yes, absolutely. So let's get into that. So tell us, where does critical theory come from? So the term itself came from an essay, uh, 1937 essay entitled Traditional and Critical Theory by Horkheimer. And he was a sociologist who, who worked with the Frankfurt School, people like um, Adorno, Benjamin, Marcuse. So that's where the term came from. And they were concerned with applying the ideas of Karl Marx more broadly than just economics and class. They wanted to apply it to culture as well. Mm. But that was, what, 80 years ago? So critical theory has changed a lot since then. And modern schools of critical theory or critical social theories would include entire disciplines. So critical race theory is one sub-discipline within this broad critical tradition. Queer theory post-structuralism, post-colonialism, these disciplines would all be subsumed within this umbrella term called critical theory. So when you talk about modern, this phenomenon we're seeing in culture, what do you call it? People call it different things. People will call it identity politics. Mm. They'll call it intersectionality. They'll call it critical social justice. That's Robin D'Angelo's term. Uh, applied postmodernism. So no one really knows how to label this phenomenon. It's clearly coming out of the critical tradition, it's drawing on the ideas of Marx, not his economic ideas, but his ideas about how power operates within society. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, Paolo Freire, Foucault, Crenshaw, these are all names you'll hear that are being explicitly appealed to by contemporary critical theorists. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the label's not that important. What we, what we call this thing, whether you call it cultural Marxism, I don't recommend that term, but neo-Marxism, critical social justice, that label's not important. What's important are the ideas that are being promoted. And the question we should ask is, are these ideas biblical and true? Yeah, so let's get into that. Any theory starts with a certain kind of, if you will, presuppositions or premises, rather. So what are some key premises of any critical theory? Well, yeah, so again, critical theory... Broadly, there are lots of critical theories, but the right. stuff we're seeing today, say mm-hmm. from Robin D'Angelo, who has the number one best-selling book on Amazon right now entitled White Fragility, the ideas that she's promoting in this, this is, an, is it one particular manifestation of critical theory, call it what you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I identify four main ideas that are being promoted. And when you hear the ideas, regardless of what you call them, you'll immediately say, oh yeah, I've definitely heard that idea in culture. So the first one would be the social binary. This is the idea that society is divided between oppressed groups and oppressor groups along lines of race, class, gender. So here's just a quote from the Sensoy and D'Angelo in their book, Is Everyone Really Equal? They write, for every social group, there is an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. And associated with all of those identity markers, they have their various forms of oppression, sexism, racism, classism, heterosexism, etc. So they have like a table in their book that just has a list of oppressions and then lists the minoritized, the target, the oppressed group on one hand. And the other side, they list the oppressor, the agent, the dominant group. And so you'd have people of color are oppressed, whites are oppressors, women are oppressed, men are oppressors, the LGBTQ people are oppressed, 
and heterosexuals who are the oppressors. And so you have all of these. It's just right there in graphic form. So that social binary is an important idea. Let me just pick up on a word that you just said there. You very specifically said minoritized. What do you mean by that? That's a, that's a key concept. So within this ideology, it's not just numbers that matter. So, for example, only 15% of the United States are old white men. Yet old white men are the canonical oppressor group. Well, why? They're a minority numerically, right? Mm. Well, you have to understand something else. The next point. How does critical theory define oppression? Because oppressed groups are minoritized. Doesn't mean they're numerical minorities. So okay, let's talk about the next idea. So critical theorists, contemporary critical theorists, have redefined the word oppression. So here's a great example from Iris Young's very influential essay, Five Faces of Oppression. She writes, in its new usage, new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer not because a tyrannical power coerces them, but because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. So the contrast between, in its old usage, oppression meant tyranny, coercion, cruelty, violence, mm-hmm. but today it means the injustices that people suffer as a result of well-intentioned liberal society and its norms, habits, and symbols. An example would be heteronormativity. That's the idea that it's normative, it's normal, it's it's considered the default for people to be heterosexual. That's our culture's norm, and critical theorists would say that's a form of oppression because it's marginalizing, saying it's not normal, it's outside the norm, that someone is LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. So they would say that heteronormativity itself is uh, an op- a form of oppression or cisgender privilege, the idea that people are assumed that their sex and gender are aligned. They would say that actually marginalizes and oppresses people that are not within the gender binary. So the gender binary itself is oppressive. That's a key. So that's why you get old white men being an oppressor group, even though they're a minority group numerically, because our norms, our values as a society are assumed to enshrine old white male values. They're there to justify why old white men have all of the power. That's the way that they view these norms and values. Uh, That makes a lot of sense of what we see, for example, with the LGBTQ community, because from the conservative side, what people say is, oh, they're trying to make the LGBTQ lifestyle, you know, normalized. But that is, in a sense, exactly what they're trying to do because they think, okay, heterosexuality is normative and it's oppressive. And so we need to make it so that heterosexuality is but one of many other types of sexual lifestyle. I guess they are trying to make their lifestyle normal, and that would make a lot of sense of what you're saying there. Right, yeah. And actually, that's that'll get into another one of the premises, the idea of social justice. So that's a very slippery term. People use it in different ways. But when contemporary critical theorists use that term, they mean this. So Mary McClintock, in her essay, Disrupting Oppression, that's what it's called, uh, she writes, she defines social justice as the elimination of all forms of social oppression, whether it's based on gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, physical or mental ability, or economic class. So that's how they're defining social justice. And remember, they define oppression as having some dominant social group that imposes its norms on culture. 
So to a critical theorist, to subvert those norms, dismantle those arbitrary norms that justify the ruling class, justifies, well, why, why, why is it, of course it's common sense that, say, men and women get married and have kids. That's common sense. It's natural. It's normal. They want to challenge and interrogate that norm, that assumption, and show that it's actually just working to provide power and privilege to heterosexuals. Or they would want to question any norm that sees whiteness as the default, the standard by which people are measured. They'd want to question, dismantle whiteness, because that's just there to perpetuate white supremacy, which they, they define as seeing white people as the default. So, so they've redefined a lot of these terms that we think we're familiar with, but actually if you look at their definitions, they've changed them in often very serious ways. Right. I'm just curious, is this sort of thinking prevalent anywhere else outside of, you know, say North America and say Western Europe? The reason I'm asking is because if you apply that thinking to say South Korea, where I was born and raised, whiteness isn't the default. In fact, a couple of weeks ago when we were speaking on George Floyd and all the fallout that's been happening after that, I mentioned this one Korean celebrity who's actually half Korean and half white. And she grew up being teased a lot. She was called big eyed monster growing up, you know, those kinds of things. So over there, it's the Koreanness that's a default. So it would seem to me that if you take this kind of ideal and, and apply it to Korea, because the norm is different, you would have to apply it to a different group of people. Right. Would that be a, a fair thing to say? Sort of. This is where it's complicated. So critical theorists today writing in our culture refer mainly to our culture or the Western culture broadly. Mm -hmm. However, so they might modify their theories when applied to other cultures. That's true. However, the discipline of post-colonialism would explicitly try to understand how colonialism has imparted these ideas to other cultures. So they would talk about things like the, quote, global whiteness project. Mm. D'Angelo talks about how whiteness has been exported through colonialism so that in some sense, all of, you know, and through mass media, so that in some sense, all cultures are infected by whiteness as the norm. And they'll actually, they would actually defend that premise by looking at things like skin whitening in other cultures and and how colonialism has influenced how we perceive European culture. So there is a whole discipline, mainly post-colonialism, that would actually try to apply those same same categories even to other cultures. But but if push came to shove, they probably would admit that this mainly applies to, say, the U.S. and Canada and Europe. Mm. So if you read uh, Seacrest's uh, anthology, Can White People Be Saved?, which was put out by InterVarsity Press last year, they will speak very clearly about the global whiteness project as something that all nations have been influenced by through colonialism. Mm, okay. Before we move on to even more critique of these ideas, I want to talk about the last premise of critical theories, um, which is lived experience. Can we touch on that first? So lived experience, uh, what I've been told, and tell me if I'm getting this right, is that if you say are in an oppressed group of some sort, that you have this uh, privileged access to truth. So you have this lived experience as an oppressed person that oppressors might be, you know, th th this is their blind spot, right? So then 
coming from an oppressor group, there are certain things that you just can't challenge. Like this lived experience of an oppressed person can't be challenged because they just don't have any understanding of what it's like to be, say, a black person, African-American in the United States today. Um, Is that a fair description of it? How would you describe it? That's right. So the idea is that lived experience gives you insight into uh, social reality. If you're if you're an oppressed person, it gives you insight into social reality that is tends to be absent from people from oppressor groups. So uh, you are blinded. If you're a white male, you're blinded by your white male privilege, or you tend to be. Whereas a say a black woman would tend to be enlightened by her lived experience. Her lived experience would give her insight into what's really going on, and it would lead her to challenge the dominant narrative about how we live in a meritocracy, how things are basically just, how there are some problems, but we're not experiencing tremendous oppression anymore. But her lived experience would give her insight into those ideas being actually just lies that are meant to pacify and propagate the existing status quo, the power structure that we're living under. And yeah, it would tend to, people will hedge a little bit on this, but the bottom line was would be that it's hard to challenge someone's lived experience from this framework because if you're a, let's say you're a white person, you say, well, I don't really believe that about, say, culture. You can be told, well, that's just your male privilege talking. However, let's say you are a black woman and you say, well, actually, that doesn't match my experience of reality. Well, then they can accuse you of having internalized oppression. In other words, mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, yeah, but you're just saying that because you're still immersed in the dominant culture's narrative about reality. You have to get woke and realize that these are just lies being sold to you to to coerce your obedience. So really, no matter who makes the objection, it can be dismissed as either speaking from a position of privilege or speaking from a position of internalized oppression or or white adjacency is another term that's often used, male adjacency, the idea that you are just kind of currying favor from the dominant group. I always found that a little bit frustrating because it, it doesn't seem to matter what you say. The assumption is that unless you adopt our view of things, you're just not woke. You're just, you don't, we have this correct view of reality and you don't. It just seems to me like a whole lot of circular reasoning there because, for example, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, some black conservatives has come out voicing their opinions. And over and over again, I heard people giving pushback saying, this is just internalized racism. Yep. And then you would say something much the same to somebody like Cassie J, who is the producer of the Red Pill documentary, where she actually challenges the feminist narrative. And so then people would push back and say, no, this is internalized misogyny. And so for me, it it's, sounds like circular reasoning. They just presuppose that their view is correct and that can't be challenged. And anybody who disagrees with them, well, this is you – have this internalized so so you don't you're not seeing reality correctly having said that i i think there's some truth to the premise though that you know there are certain things that for example i as a man simply don't experience right so a while back at a positive canada podcast we talked about the me too movement and after that i had a chance to chat with some of my uh, female coworkers at the church where i was working and i asked them okay so what's your experience when you're on an elevator by yourself and a man that you don't know walks onto the elevator and they would tell me all these things about the 
hold their key differently to use as a weapon and all those kinds of things and to me i'm just like when another man gets on the elevator it's just another man getting on the elevator that's just not my experience so i think there's some truth to that but i just have a really hard time accepting that this somehow gives you privileged access to truth and you can't challenge people's lived experiences because in my mind i'm thinking well experiences just are it's what you make of your experience I think that can be challenged. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, that's exactly right. We have to distinguish between an experience and an interpretation of the experience. And so you Mm. see it really clearly when you point out that there is an asymmetry built into contemporary critical theory such that certain experiences are seen as veridical and truthful that that fit a certain narrative. And other, other experiences that are equally true, they're personal, but they're dismissed as products of privilege or internalized oppression. For example, imagine a woman who said, well, I've never experienced domestic abuse. My All the men in my life have been wonderful and supportive mm-hmm. and loving. And, and therefore, she concludes, therefore, from my lived experience, I conclude that domestic abuse does not exist in this country. You say, no, wait, 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 no, no, you can't do that. You know, mm-hmm. that's your experience. I'm not denying your experience. That's wonderful. And yet, if you want to make a statement about objective reality, about universal claims, about general social structures, you have to appeal to more than just your own experience because your experience is limited, both the experience of a person from a quote-unquote oppressor group and the experience of a person from an oppressed group. So no one can take their personal lived experience and extrapolate to talk about all of culture. That is illicit no matter who's doing it. And actually, it's interesting, my collaborator, Pat, his actual academic research right now is focusing on understanding how white supremacist groups recruit on campus, how neo-Nazis recruit new members. And interestingly, he points out that they appeal to the young white male's lived experience. They say, we know what it's like to be hated because you're a, you're a young white male. Everyone despises you. Mm-hmm. We affirm your lived experience. Now join the neo-Nazis. We will affirm you. So they're mm-hmm. actually teaching these disaffected white males to do the, exactly what is illicit, which is to extrapolate from their – maybe they have experienced being hated for their gender or their race. Mm-hmm. But you can't go from there to saying, therefore, this entire worldview of white supremacy and neo-Nazism is true. That's totally wrong. So their lived experience has lied to them and has led them astray. And the way to push back against that is to say, look, it's terrible what you experience. I'm not denying that. And yet when you're making claims about – worldview, about all of culture, about general objective reality, you have to have more than just your personal lived experience. As you were talking there, like it just occurred to me that you could take this critical theory approach and apply it really anywhere as long as you divide your group into the oppressor group, oppressed group, along some kind of an axis that is convenient to you, right? So, for example, you just talked about how, you know, neo-Nazis are appealing to the lived experiences of disenfranchised white males and their and their lived experiences. So let's go back to that premise, the first premise you talked about, social binary. Now, we, we talked about how there's the oppressors and oppressed groups, but that always runs along some kind of a line, right? Whether it's race, gender, uh, socioeconomic class. Um, how do critical theorists and authors 
come to choose these because it seems to me you could come up with virtually infinite number of different kind of axes, if you will, along which you could divide our society into the oppressors and the oppressed. You couldn't. They're always growing, right? If you look back, say, 50 or 60 years ago, they were primarily talking about class. Like this was Marx talking about class warfare and class conflict. So they've added categories. So second wave feminism was really big on adding then sex. And then critical race theorists were, were instrumental in adding race as a category. And they did not exist before that. I'm just saying that they began theorizing about these different categories. And those classes have expanded to physical ability, like ableism is one of the more newer oppressions or mm-hmm. transgender oppression. It's interesting. Some of these books, they're in like their 10th edition. But I think if you go back to the first edition and they didn't have some of these categories listed there, mm. they had to update the books because they're now new categories of oppression. Uh, what they would say is that what um, that these categories are identified by how society allocates resources and value. So what is considered to be a valuable person and who gets the most resources, that's how you determine whether a category is oppressed or not. What critical, and this is going to keep in mind here, this is not all critical theorists, because mm. there are tons of critical theories. This is a, the stuff we're seeing today right, within right. the social justice movement. But uh, what they're really bad at is recognizing that there is context associated with privilege and disadvantage. So, for example, what you totally missed, because they're looking at the contours of society as a whole, they tend to ignore the idea that privilege can be fully contextual. So they'll talk about Christian privilege. Okay, the Christians in our culture tend to be privileged over, say, uh, Muslims, because mm-hmm. we get Christian holidays off from school. But Muslims don't get their holidays off from school. Okay, that's fine. Or you say atheists. You know, atheists, there are not many openly atheist politicians. So they'd say that atheists are marginalized. Right. But here's the thing. That might be true of society as a whole. But if you walk onto, say, a very progressive college campus, being a an outspoken Christian there will be a liability, not a point of privilege. So mm-hmm. there's a difference between privilege, say, in rural Arkansas and in highly progressive college campuses. So, or there's, you know, we might have, there might be white privilege in the U.S., but if you go to Iran or you go to Korea, there will not be white privilege there. And that's even true of communities within the U.S. So I think you pointed that out before, but they tend to only see these very broad contours and therefore ignore the fact that it's all contextual. Mm-hmm. And it, we should be very hesitant to say you can describe entire groups this way and accurately characterize their actual day-to-day experiences. The actual day-to-day experiences of some poor, uneducated, illiterate white person in Appalachia is not one of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, not, they're not claiming it is. They're claiming that it's just it would be it's better than if they were a black, poor, uneducated, illiterate person in Appalachia. And yet, right. we're just pointing out that that word itself is a little bit unusual because it tends to make people think of absolute privilege. They're not saying that, but it has those connotations. Yeah. And I think it's better to analyze people as individuals and their individual experiences. And, and I think you kind of touched on this as you were talking about it, but you know, you you talked about this you know poor white person in Appalachia and then you have your black poor person in Appalachia and so I think that's where intersectionality comes in because it's one thing to be a Muslim say in the United States but it's a totally another thing to be a transgender Muslim and so it starts to become very hierarchical I think it seems to me 
So could you tell us a little bit more about intersectionality, how it works? Yeah, so narrowly, intersectionality is just the claim that we can't be reduced to a single category, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think we'd all agree with. Our identity can't be reduced to just our gender or just our class or just our physical ability. It's a combination of all those things. And so our experiences are not just those of a male. They're those of, say, you know, my experiences are those of a half-Indian male, an educated half-Indian male. And you can you know, go on and on and on and adding these categories. And so an individual can experience both oppression and privilege along different axes. So a good example of this will be, a, say, a white woman would be privileged with respect to her race because she's white, but she'd be oppressed with respect to her gender because she's a woman. So those two categories are uh, interacting to give her a unique experience that is not shared, say, by a woman of color. This was the big split between feminism and what's sometimes called womanism, black feminism, because black feminists said, look, we don't share your same concerns because we face oppression along a different axis that you've never experienced, which is we are black feminists. And so there was actually a sort of split in the movement. And today it's interesting that you see there's a hierarchy. Well, they'll insist that there's not a hierarchy, but there is tension. There's uh, tension. And the, the, one of the principal places you see that is between uh, people that call themselves gender-critical feminists who would say, well, there is something important about being a biological woman. And then queer theorists who would say, no, your self-identity is really what's important about being a woman. And so you have, you see that if you saw the big spat between J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author and trans activist, because she's saying, look, I have no problem with you identifying a certain way. I have no problem with you, your sexuality. But I'm just saying that there are certain experiences that are unique to biological women that should be respected. Mm-hmm. And there's a humongous fight going on now over whether or not the traditional feminists get to define what a woman is or whether queer theorists get to define what a woman is. Okay. And there's a conflict there as to – and you could see it as a conflict between you know who wins the oppression Olympics. I think it's a little bit unfair, but there is a real conflict going on there right now. Okay. Yeah, fascinating. Now, with the – time that we have remaining, I want to talk a little bit about critical theory or critical theories and the Christian worldview. I just want to hear from you, is critical theory compatible with the Christian worldview? I don't want to just talk about what critical theory gets wrong. According to the Christian worldview, what does critical theory get right and what does it get wrong? So yeah, it definitely gets some things right, which is why it's attractive. If you don't understand what insights critical theory has, you will not understand its attractiveness, its appeal. So for example, critical theory talks a lot about oppression and injustice, and Christians should say, yes, we should be concerned with those things because the Bible commands us to be concerned with oppression and injustice. That said, what critical theorists call oppression is not necessarily oppression at all. So we have to be very careful there, but there are a fundamental idea that injustice is a bad thing, it's an evil thing, we should affirm at least that motivation. They also focus on systems and structures and groups, who has power and how do they abuse that power. And Christians shouldn't be afraid of talking about systems that encourage sin. A good example for conservative Christians is abortion. Abortion is a, you know, we personally commit evil, we personally do things like seek abortions or perform abortions, and yet... We have a whole system that's encouraging that way of thinking. This is the power of ideas. Critical theorists are right to point out that we have normalized a certain view of sex and sexuality Mm -hmm. and marriage and bodily autonomy. 
And as Christians, we should say, that's exactly right. That's why it's so hard to convince people that abortion is wrong because they have they have embraced and imbibed these ideas from our culture that abortion is empowering and freeing and, and good and, and an act of liberation. So in all those ways, critical theory names actual realities that we can be concerned about as Christians. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, we can't embrace these ideas as they're stated or at all. They are totally antithetical to Christianity. And I think you picked up the main one that I'm concerned about, which is that they are presuppositions. They can't be refuted. They've isolated you from any engagement because anyone who challenges them, anyone who says, well, I don't think that's true. I don't think that statement is biblical. If they're coming from an oppressor group, you can you say, well, that's just your white Western male interpretation of scripture. And if they belong to an oppressed group, you can say, well, you've internalized the old white male way of reading scripture. But in neither case do you actually have to engage their arguments. That's very concerning. Mm -hmm. So that epistemology of appealing to people's identities and dismissing them based on, you know, their race or class or gender, that is deeply, deeply dangerous. We have to always appeal to scripture and ask, what does scripture say? And then there are a whole host of other ideas that I think are equally bad. I mean, there's not really a concept of redemption or atonement or forgiveness within contemporary critical theory. That's why the movement tends to be so angry and outraged and there's this cancel culture Mm -hmm. because you are, in some sense, in charge of your own salvation. You you know, your project is to work for social justice and it's something that you do and you're working to overturn these oppressive structures and you do that. But there's no sense in which you yourself are a sinner who stands under the wrath of a holy God who needs rescue. Right. And so that's why it's easy within critical theory to separate the bad guys from the good guys. The bad guys who are on the wrong side of history from the good guys who are on the right side. The bad guys who are trying to promote injustice and privilege and power and the good guys who are trying to liberate the oppressed. Whereas Christianity says, look, there's one good guy and we crucified him. And all the rest of us are bad guys. (laughs) So that's, again huge difference between those worldviews. And I fear that as Christians embrace these ideas, they will lose sight of the fact that like it or not, you know, as much as we want to work for true justice, we have to recognize that what people need most of all is not an improved society. Mm. We need fundamentally a transformed heart. We need fundamentally a forgiveness before God. And all of our activism should flow from that. Mm -hmm. But that will never rival our fundamental identity in Christ, our union with him, or our need for salvation. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be the center of our worldview, that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then last two questions for you, uh, Neil. How can Christians engage those who hold to, who are advocates of critical theories? What might be some do's and don'ts, would you say? I mean, you, I think you kind of touched on some of the problems, namely you had mentioned epistemology, like how do we know which system is oppressive, those kinds of things. Um, I think it would kind of connect with that a little bit, but do you have any specific do's and don'ts when it comes to Christians engaging with advocates of critical theories? I think the do's would be try to recognize where their concerns are good and biblical. So if they care about justice, however they define it, you can say, well, I care about justice too. I define it differently maybe than you do, but I do care about that. I care about the poor and the vulnerable. These, I think these things are very serious sins that you're identifying. So do affirm those things. Um, 
I think don't just call them names. Don't call them a social justice warrior or a Marxist. Don't assume mm-hmm. that when they use certain terminology, they must be smuggling in these terrible ideas. You know, just be charitable. Ask questions about what they actually believe. The best question you can probably ask a non-Christian who's embraced this movement would be something like this. What would convince you that you're wrong? Mm. Let's, let that let it sit with them. What would convince you that you're wrong about any issue or, or all of these issues? And if, and you say, well, what if a, uh, have you read, have you read books written by very intelligent scholars who disagree with the policy claims you're making? You're saying we should do this. Have you considered the other view? And if they say, well, no, because you know, that view comes from a position of whiteness or maleness, you say, well, wait a minute. So there's no way to challenge your view, even if you read, I mean, recommend to them, say, conservative black scholars like Thomas Sowell and say, well, what do you disagree with his claims here? And begin to show them that they've really locked themselves into this closed room where they can't get out because they'll never consider opposing views because they'll dismiss them before even considering them. So that would be a good question to ask. What would convince you that you're wrong? Great. Um, this has been such a wonderful conversation, very enlightening. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, my final question for you is, if our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where can they go? Where would you send them? Uh, the best thing to do is just to Google my name. So just Google Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. You'll find my website. I'm on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. And you'll find my blog, you'll find my Twitter account, and I have a lot of resources about books that you can read, terms that you hear a lot, how they're defined, Uh, but you'll find lots of interviews like this one (laughs) and podcasts, so just Google my name. I think I might be the only Neil Shenvey in the world, just because it's a (laughs) kind of, it's, you know, it's just not a very common name. In India, it's more common, uh, but it's still not that common. Uh, so you'll you'll find me. My DMs are open. So if you have questions about these issues, you're welcome to DM me. I get, I've been getting a lot of messages, but I try to get through them. So I'll try to respond to you as quickly as I can. Um, so we'll we'll wrap up here. Thank you again so much for your time, Neil. Um, this has been wonderful. Uh, listeners, please look up Neil Shanvi. Check out his Facebook page as well. Um, I've been on Neil's website for the last little while now. There's a ton of really good material there that you just don't want to miss, especially if you want to get into critical theory. If you're not very familiar with it and you want to get yourself acquainted, and if you want to see a good balanced critique of things, I would highly recommend shanviapolitics.com. Make sure you check that out. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this another edition of the AC Podcast. AC Podcast is a ministry of Apolitics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care of yourselves out there. Mm